Welcome back to the TD Jakes podcast. Today's guest on the show is Miles McPherson, the pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego. He's a motivational speaker, a former NFL football player, and now a published author. His book, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation, forces us to rethink our biases, to see people not by the color of their skin, but as God sees them, humans created in the image of God. This is a thoughtful discussion for the betterment of humanity, so please go check this out. Without further ado, let's get into it. While he's getting his breath, let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, If you don't know him, you will know him in just a moment. He was born in Brooklyn, New York in March of 1960, which means he's younger than me. (laughs) The second oldest of five children, McPherson was raised on Long Island in a strong family. After excelling in football throughout high school, he attended the University of New Haven, where he majored in engineering. McPherson was the university's first player to achieve all American honors in football and be drafted into the NFL. Strong athletics run in the McPherson family. Miles' brother Don McPherson was a Heisman Trophy runner-up in 1987. Now he's Pastor Miles McPherson. He played four years in the NFL with San Diego Chargers from 1982 to 1985. It was during this time that he developed a cocaine addiction that found the NFL star in a tailspin as he began feeding his habit. After his second season in the NFL and after a weekend-long drug binge, he called out to Jesus Christ accepted the Lord as his Savior, stopped doing drugs in just one day, not 12 steps, not 10, not five, just one day. God completely delivered him and transformed him. No wonder he's a preacher now. Miles worked as youth pastor for Horizon Christian Fellowship in San Diego, enrolled in Azusa Pacific University School of Theology, received his Master's of Divinity degree in 1991, and the rest is history. He started a slamming church, called The Rock Church in San Diego. According to Outreach Magazine, The Rock has consistently been one of the nation's fastest growing, largest churches with nearly 15,000 15, people attending one of The Rock 21 Sunday services. Rock's 21 Sunday services. 21 Sunday services. Jesus. In addition to the services that are experienced, through online streaming, microsites, radio, and television. In 2013, uh, Pastor Miles initiated the Do Something Church, and he goes on and on and on about this tremendous man. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. I'm tired listening to that. Yeah, you've had such an interesting and eclectic life. Wow. Wow. Catch your breath. Welcome. Th- thanks for waiting. I-, I was, you know, driving through Dallas. I appreciate yeah. your patience. The Dallas traffic can be uh, quite interesting at times. But that's fine. We're just glad you're here, and I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk to you. You have really led a very eclectic life from uh, ups and downs and highs and lows and and being in the NFL, going through a substance abuse, uh, then getting saved, getting called into ministry, starting ministry, and, and now God is using you in a tremendous way. Uh, how, how, when you look back at your life, <sighs> yeah, are you shocked? Because the people who are watching us, there are thousands and thousands of people who are joining us on Facebook Live right now. Are you shocked to see uh, where God has brought you to? Absolutely. I, um, first, when I was growing up, I went to Catholic school. Okay. And eight years from first to eighth grade. And... I was, you know, 
I had no affinity to being a minister. I had no affinity to religion. I was going to school. Uh, I, I grew up in a black neighborhood, went to school in an all-white neighborhood, so there were two black kids in my class. And so that school was like, I can't wait to get out of here. So I had no idea I would ever be a pastor and be in ministry. So wait a minute. You, you grew up in a black neighborhood. Yes. With uses. Yeah, uses. <laughs> yeah. But you went to school in a conservative white area neighborhood. Yeah, yes. Wow. What did you learn from that? You know, I have, uh, my, my grandparents are from Jamaica. Okay. Both my grandfathers are black. I have one grandmother who's half black, half Chinese. Okay. A, a man from China came to Jamaica, had jungle fever, started <laughs> having babies, right? Okay. So that's my grandma. I have okay. another grandma who's white. Okay. So I grew up in diversity. Right. And my white grandmother lived in the black neighborhood with us. So she was wow. like, she was our mom, but she was also a mom to tons of kids that she babysat. And she was right on the pathway where all the kids walked to high school. So she was part of that community. And so when I went to the the Catholic school, and I remember being in in class, you know, there was me and another guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we we got all the names, calling all the time, and all all my brothers and sisters were there. We felt like outsiders. You know, I was an outsider there. But because I was light, I was somewhat of an outsider in my neighborhood because I called those names, too, as you know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm dry, I would ride my bike through the white neighborhood and very rarely go up there during the week. But, you know, ride out because kids are calling me names and I get back into my neighborhood. And then I got called names there. So I, I, I got to get to my block. You could win for losing. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So when I got on my block, that's when I was, when I was felt really home safe. When I was little, when I got older in high school, it was different. But it, it, I was at like, you know, a little ping pong back and forth in both neighborhoods. I mean, in my white neighborhood, in the white neighborhood where I went to school, those kids would not come to my neighborhood. Right. And we're only talking, uh, my house to that school was a mile. Right. And so there, there was one street that divided these two neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So the white kids lived literally across the street from where the black, we, we lived. Mm-hmm. And our high school was on that street. Right. So when we got to high school, we all came together. Oh, wow. And it was awesome. Wow. You know, uh, that's a funny thing. It, it amazes me when I look at Scripture. Some of the men that God used in the most mighty way were men who had diverse backgrounds. Huh. When you look at uh, Moses and you look at how he was a Hebrew, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but he was raised in <laughs> yeah. Egyptian. Right, right. Then he spent 40 years with the Midianites. Mm-hmm. Uh, that multicultural ideology, I think, had something to do with his selection, his greatness, his ability to flow in and out of different types of circles and be effective. Exactly. You look at the Apostle Paul, you know, who was a citizen of Rome, but was a Jew by birth, mm-hmm. was of the tribe of Benjamin, mm-hmm. spoke in several different languages, mm-hmm. and God was able to use him because he wasn't narrow-minded. How do you think that your perspectives, having had eaten off all of those cultural tables, prepared you for where you are right now in life and prepared you for the church you pastor? Yeah, and, and my church is about half white and half everything else. And and um, when I was growing up in 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 the black neighborhood, I, of course, I understood my friends. And I heard their stories, and, and I had my story. And then when I went to school, and I heard their stories, and I heard each other's perspective about the other. Mm-hmm. And said, no, that's not the case. Because some of the kids on my team end up growing, the guy, growing up to be the guys that went to jail. But mm-hmm. they were my brothers. We played football together, and they were family to me. 
one kid had no dad, no mom when he was 10. Mm -hmm. So my parents were like his parents. Mm -hmm. These were like my brothers. These are the guys in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And when I hear the other guys talk about them, I say, you don't, you don't know him. And then you don't know him. So what it enabled me to do was to understand how different people think about themselves and about each other mm -hmm. and the different fears they have about each other. And to be in the middle and say, let me clarify and let me help you understand. So you've been a mediator all your life. <laughs> Without even realizing. <laughs> you know something, uh, it, it is so funny because I think all about everything that we go through in our past helps to prepare us for everything that we will do in our future. That God has had us in his university the whole time. Because you don't waste any time. <laughs> no, no time. I mean, I grew up in West Virginia. It was 5% black. Uh, if, you didn't, wow. if you didn't play with white kids, you didn't have nobody to play with. All of my black friends, I can name them. I knew them. That They all went to school together. We sat in the corner in the back of the bus. <laughs> so I got inundated. Having said that, and I understood white culture and interacted with at least West Virginia Appalachian culture. Hi, West Virginia, if you're watching. <laughs> but on the other hand, my mother's from Alabama. My father's from Mississippi. My mother went to school with Coretta Scott King. So I was really entrenched in who I was ethnically and my right. culture and my food and my ancestry. Right. My mother made sure that you could quote all of the black <laughs> poets and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I really get that. What worries me today, and I don't know how you feel about it, with the animosity and the accurate remarks that are hurled at us from social media to headlines and news to the drive-by killings to all of the atrocities that are happening between the police and the street and, and, and just the, the, the marching, the, what happened in Charlottesville. Do you worry that our country, our world uh, is becoming self-destructive? Yes. One of the things I write about in the book, and the reason I wrote this book is to give people tools to honor. It's about honor. The book is about honor. How can I honor you as a human being made in the image of God that you have value, you have intelligence that I don't know about, you have uh, dreams that I don't know about, you have a dream that your life would be positive? When we label someone or call someone a name, we dehumanize them. You know, the Bible says that to love your neighbor as yourself, it was number two commandment. And then the Bible says in 1 John, if I can't love you and my brother who I can see or my sister, I can't love God who I can't see. But if I rename you as something other than my brother or sister, I don't need to love you. You know, when I, was, when I used to watch the Cowboys and Indians as a girl, I wanted to, I wanted to know about the Indians, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you know, they were they, I, just, I just want to know about them. They were cool. They didn't have saddles. They, they, you know, their girls had long hair, <laughs> all kind of stuff. Okay. But they were savages. Okay. That was their title. Yeah. And when you, when you rename people less than human or less than you, it gives you freedom to treat them any way you want. Words have a lot of power. Words have power. You know. And we also misdiagnose people. I, I, I want to I get into it. The, the book is amazing. It's really going to blow your mind. And, and we're going to get into the depths of the book in, in just a moment. I want to put the book, the subject matter of the book really deals with how we interact with each other culturally, racially, uh, even, even as it relates to uh, uh, being uh, opposed to people because they're poorer than you or more wealthy than you and all of the biases that are innate in our society. But I want to put that subject in the context of the times that we live in. There had to be something that you saw in the world around you that said, now is the time. Uh, to deal with this. And when you look at our world today, the fear, uh, the hostility, 
uh, the entrapment of people trying to cross the border. That's one thing. And then the refugees who historically have been able to enter into this country legally uh, being apprehended. What makes this book urgent for right now? Um, when I started the book two years ago, it, it was bad. Mm-hmm. It's even worse. I, you know, I, there were so many instances that happened the last two years. It's got to come out right now. Yeah. Then, oh, no, it's got to come out right now. Yeah, <laughs> right. It keeps getting worse. You, could, you, you wouldn't think that it could get any worse, and then it does. Yeah, and I think, I think what's happening now is that we're so used to putting people in, labeling people and putting people in different boxes that are, that are less than me. And it's so easy to criticize people and to label people and to uh, demean people. And we have to get back to where we honor people. When we see people, listen, we have to have laws and all that kind of stuff. However, we have to look at people and say, that is not an immigrant. Let me not label them as an immigrant, though that may be what they are. My grandparents, my parents were immigrants, but they're people. Mm -hmm. And how can we honor them as people when, as you said, God doesn't waste opportunities and who knew that now today would be like today when I started two years ago. Right. Right. Because even when I started the book, it wasn't going to be about racism. It was going to be about something else. And a chapter was going to be on race. And I wrote that chapter as the proposal. And they said, can you do the whole book? And I said, please, can I do the whole book on it? Because, <laughs> you know, Bishop, because you, you grew up, we grew up when Martin Luther King was still alive. Right. And. And I, got, I can't speak for every black person, but I got to believe a lot of us felt like, I want to be like that. Now, trust me, I'm not saying I'm like him, but mm. I want to do something. Right. And, and so all my life, I've always been burdened to do something. And when we started the book, like I said, the times have gotten worse and worse and worse. And I think it's so important because it seems people seem to have so much more permission to mm-hmm. be critical mm-hmm. and dishonoring. And this book is designed to give people tools to be honoring. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you start talking about people having permission, I think that you and I grew up at a time, I certainly experienced a great deal of racism growing up. I, I know what it was like for my father to uh, have to go to the back of the restaurant to get food to feed us when we were little. I grew up with the third bathroom and the colored water cool- coolers. We've come a long ways from all of that sort of thing. And yet we're seeing a resurgence of that and an empowerment of that in a way that is actually alarming, disturbing. I have every emotion from emotion to anger to fear to worried about my grandchildren. Uh, in a country that, that I so love and, and so identify with and so relate to, uh, and then there's the church component of mm-hmm. it, okay? Mm-hmm. So the church is supposed to be salt and light. But Dr. King said that the 11 o'clock hour is, is the most segregated hour in our country. Now, I know your church is an exception to the rule, and we're going to talk about the magic of you. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's a magic. It's my Chinese grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a magic. We can't all go back and have Chinese grandmothers and white grandmothers who grew up in black neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff. But maybe we can learn something from you that will help us out a little bit. But I think that the church should rise and take the clarion call of leading the world into the light of brotherhood and fellowship and koinonia and being able to uh, value each other. And I love the word that you use, honor. Mm-hmm. To honor uh, one another as, as the likeness of God that I see. I see God in you. Mm-hmm. I see God in you. Mm-hmm. I see God in your mm-hmm. eyes. Mm-hmm. I see God in the vibrancy of your life and mm-hmm. your laughter. Mm-hmm. And to, to take that life mm-hmm. would be to assault the God that lives in you. I think we've gotten a long ways from that. But the truth of the matter is this church has its own issues. What do we need to do as believers 
to walk the walk that we talk. And, and I think that we often intend to, but between politics and biases and innate proclivities, we drift away. How are you calling the church back to accountability? Let me tell you, let me tell you, uh, you're right about the, the segregation of the church and um, uh, blind, I have two chapters on blind spots and blind spots is when there's a difference between your intent and your impact. Mm-hmm. And I could intend to love you, but I offend you. What I, what I say, there's a, there's a blind spot because I'm, I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. And I, I did a prayer meeting in, in, in San Diego, in, in what would be a historically black neighborhood in San Diego, mm-hmm. a minority neighborhood where a higher percentage of blacks live. And I did it there for a reason. So the pastors who came, some white would come to that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And some were walking in that neighborhood saying, as they were walking into the church, the biggest African-American church we have in San Diego. I've never been to this neighborhood before. Mm-hmm. It's two minutes from downtown. You know, we have three Heisman Trophy winners. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and I said, so you will fly to Africa and Haiti and, and to minister, but you won't go five minutes in your neighborhood. I think the church, and, and by the way, the black church in that neighborhood is administering to the Hispanic church down the street, mm-hmm. vice versa, vice versa, vice mm-hmm. versa. So it's all of us, mm-hmm. right? Is the, is the black church have any friends in the rich white neighborhood? Because right. you can add something, you have value. And so the church has to step back and say, am I willing to look at my blind spot? Because I could preach to my, my, my church, love everybody, love everybody, but am I really loving everybody? Do, am I really expressing unconditional love to everybody I know or just to the people I feel comfortable with? So I'm challenging the churches and, and, and challenge pastors to get together and pray with each other and talk about race with each other. You know, when you, when you start talking about blind spots, one of the things that... I think that if people see the third option, the book that that you've written, that's going to be released when? September 11th, but they can get it online right now. You can go to Amazon. You can pre-order this book. You can get it ahead of everybody, get ahead of the game. Go to Amazon right now and reserve your copy because it is really a very thoughtful reflection on a complicated issue that I think is important. And one of the reasons I think it's important, I don't think that, now you wrote the book, you can categorize it however you want. Whatever you say is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I don't think that it is just about racism. I think it goes into biases and human proclivities and the subtle ways in which our biases affect our decisions about friends, uh, you know, about uh, job opportunities. It's human to be this way. It's human to be this way. Whether we want to admit it or not, we all all have innate biases that are not just about race. It might be about uh, occupations. All doctors are friends with doctors, actors run around with actors, so forth, athletes with athletes. It's human to be this way. Until one group has more power than the other, then those biases limit the opportunities of the other, and then it becomes bitterness and anger and hostility breaks in because it's not just about bias. It's about Power mm-hmm. and the the lack of equal distribution of power takes a human proclivity and turns it into an abuse. What I loved about this this book and, and the thoughts that you gave in it, it doesn't let anybody escape. No. Because, you know, you have to ask yourself, you have to go through your phone Rolodex and say, how many people do I have in my phone that look different than me or are more or less educated than me or are not in my profession or my field? Uh, How diverse have you made your life? And it's a clarion call. 
I think to live a richer, fuller life by dropping your walls and your fears and overcoming that human proclivity and reaching out to other people, is that some of what you had in mind? Yeah. First, I have to say, let me say to your audience a couple of things. I don't know how much he's read the book, but he knows the book better than me. (laughs) (laughs) And he can preach the book better than me. So whatever he says, that's it. He took it to a whole other level. So remember that when the royalties come out. I'll be, I'll be, thank you, Bishop. I'll be, thank you, Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) So, so. Uh, to give to give background to what they haven't heard was the in-group, out-group. So the whole thread of the book is that we are all part of groups. We're, we have in-groups and then we have out-groups. Your in-groups are any group you're in. We're senior pastors. That's a group. Mm-hmm. We're men. That's a group. We're grandfathers. That's a group. Mm-hmm. Women, group. So And we're all part of many groups. Whatever group you're in, that's your in-group. Those are people like me. Mm-hmm. Whatever group you're not in, those are people not like me. The in-group the, the, we know intimate information, detailed information about people, about in-group. I know about pastors and senior pastors. Mm-hmm. When I come in a building like this, I feel the pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Staff and HR, yeah, 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 the yeah, appointment. Yeah, yeah. If you're not a senior pastor, you don't get all that. You yeah. just see, I got a lot of people to talk to. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> right. 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 If you're not, so so when you're, if you're in-group, you understand details. For people in your out-group, you generalize. That's where stereotypes come from. You get your information from television. And if you only look at one news station, that's going to be your information. Absolutely. So you're biased. And so I was on vacation, and I saw an athlete in the gym in a hotel, and he ended up being a hockey player. Mm-hmm. We were athletes, so we were in our in-group of an athlete. But because he was hockey, he was on my out-group. Mm-hmm. So we got to educate each other about what we didn't know. Oh, okay. And so everybody's part of a group. There's in-group bias, and so all the people in my in-group I give preferential treatment to. I'm more patient. I have an expectation I'm going to get along. Uh, I, I give more grace when the mistakes are made. But if you're in my out-group, I give less patience. I'm less gracious. I have less of an expectation we'll get along. So that's as a foundation of what he's referring to. So when you talk about business, absolutely. If I'm a CEO, CEO is the in-group. Oh, absolutely. I, I got a mentality. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? And so this book does transcend racial issues and ethnic differences. It, it, it's it, much bigger than that. It's, and it's not a black and white thing. It's every human <laughs> yeah. being on the planet. I love what you said about in-groups and out-groups. And, and one of the things that, that I got out of it, when, it's, when you start talking about in-groups, you're understood in your group. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're understood. And we love to be understood. And even though we should be students of life, especially as we become adults, we, we lose some of that childlike curiosity where we want to understand. We stay where we understand we're the lazy. rules. Yeah, we're lazy. We understand the rules of the game. We understand what to wear. We know where to go. We know what to do. And we live in, in our in-group. But the in-group to me is a prison. Mm-hmm. It's a prison. It's a prison. I would hate to live and die and never leave my group. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and it's an amazing thing because I have traveled all over the world and I love to be a student of other people's culture mm-hmm. and their food and what, what you value, mm-hmm. what's important to you about your family. When you look at Spanish speaking people and their culture <laughs> about family. Exactly. And how big family is, oh. you know, there's things to be learned from all of these out groups that you it's not just that you're hurting them. You're also robbing you. There's a chapter on culture. Mm-hmm. 
There's a chapter on for the police, there's a chapter on culture, there's a chapter for the church. But the mm -hmm. chapter on culture, I was walking in Dallas airport uh, years ago with a white friend of mine, and I was seeing brothers in the airport, and I was going, what's up, what's up, mm -hmm. what's up, what's up, what's up? Yeah. And he, after like five guys, he said, do you know those guys? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and I said, no, no, that's what we do. Right. He said, no. And I said, oh, yeah, watch this. Hey, what's up, what's up? <laughs> culture is what we what people do every group of people makes food different mm -hmm. yes every group of people raise their kids a little different right they pursued they everyone's pursuing dreams right everyone gets married a little different i did mm -hmm. i did it you ever do an ethiopian wedding yes oh my goodness it was yes. like a party it's like five days it was like a party it was like, <laughs> and i was like now this is a way <laughs> yeah, right right and instead of looking at culture as reason to divide mm -hmm. that we can learn from each other and say man i want to do if i had to do a wedding again it's like that mm -hmm. if i ever want to do you know cook dinner and have a, a meal with my family it's going to be like that right why couldn't we learn from different cultures to enhance our experience the reason i think it's important that we remain students of each other and thereby get a better understanding of who our god is mm -hmm. because when god got ready to express himself he did it through all of our cultures mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's that big mm -hmm. and every culture holds a piece of the mystery mm -hmm. of who he is mm -hmm. and we miss something when we step outside of that but we have to come into the environment from a place of humility yeah you have to come in as a student and and learn you know mm -hmm. and, and one of the things i was thinking when you were giving us the illustration because i'm almost in the airport with you <laughs> my mind is so visual when you give me words i see pictures and you expressed it so well i'm at the movies so i'm i'm in in the airport with you and you're saying what's up what's up what's up <laughs> But then when you come to a person of another race, you might say, good morning, <laughs> you, you know, good morning. That ability to be bilingual is part of the magic of you. Yes. And I think people well, who, thank you. <laughs> I think that people who are not as bilingual get stuck in their in-group and can't get out because part of getting out requires learning new languages. And I'm not necessarily talking about Spanish right. or French, right. but being able to embrace people where they are and not act like what's up is wrong as opposed to good morning. And you correct, that's not really the way you say that. It should be say what is up <laughs> and good morning. You know, just to come in as a student, stop teaching for a minute yes. and come in as a student and appreciate the beauty of the differences rather than feeling like there, there's a right and a wrong, and you have to correct me. Exactly. My way is the right way. Yeah. Words, I was in London, and it was a, a black guy walking towards me. And I say black because he wasn't African-American, but that's what I had in my head. Mm -hmm. And I go, what's up? And he went, hey, how you doing? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, I was right. like, oh, I, got, oh, I, yeah. I, I had to start over yeah. and back up. Um, we, you're right as when you say you have to be a learner. People, it's human nature to want to know, even when they come to church, pastor, tell me what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And when we tell them to trust God, we're telling them to learn, mm -hmm. to be a listener. Mm -hmm. I, I, listen to the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, I, now I got to be a listener. Just tell me what I have to do. And if we can learn how to be learners, there's a, there's a chapter on having conversations with people. Because mm -hmm. uh, you, you had a quote that I, I got to get from you that you said that you talked about the, the role of conversation in mm -hmm. culture. Yes, absolutely. And a, every time you talk to a person, you're having a race conversation. Mm -hmm. 
I'm having a race conversation right now mm -hmm. because you're an African-American man and I am and I am talking to you and I acknowledge that that's what God made you. Mm -hmm. uh, and when people say they don't see color, which is ridiculous because they only say it when they see color. So, right, 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 right. <laughs> but, but why would you say you don't, you don't see what God made? Mm -hmm. And so, but when you have a conversation, l listen to what you're saying in your head about the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Listen to what truths or uh, biases you're imposing on that person that's your race conversation mm -hmm. and and if the only way you're really going to learn and develop relationships is when you're having that conversation i have to allow you to self-disclose to me your intelligence and your mm -hmm. dreams and your mm -hmm. values and, and your experiences and your pain mm -hmm. instead of imposing on you what i believe you are and won't be ever. right but if i can't do that if i'm not humble you know you, you touched on something a minute ago. It's a pet peeve of mine. I want to dig into it a little bit more. Our consciousness, the stream of our consciousness is fed by the resources that irrigate it. So if I am, and, and I, because I live in the ministry world, but can I, I'll... Can I interrupt you for a second? Please, you got, this is y'all's pastor. You need to learn vocabulary and listen to oh, his vocabulary when he says words like irrigate your consciousness you need to learn to read the <laughs> <Stop>. dictionary <laughs> i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> and no. the substratum of the foundation of my <laughs> you challenge me you encourage me oh to come read on it. man i'm turning red up under here you can't see it i'm turning burgundy up under here no my point is this whatever you hold what truths you hold to be self-evident are only self-evident because of who spoke into your ear. If you're getting all of your information from Fox <laughs> or you're getting all your information from CNN or MSNBC or the Washington Post, then your, your truths to be self-evident and absolute are all based on uh, the media that you listen to. And because I live both in television world and we produce films and, and I interact with some of the people behind the scenes, I understand that news is a business. And I'm not castigating news because we need our reporters, but the 24-hour news cycle has demanded that ratings play into it and conflict gets viewers and viewers sells advertisement and advertisement makes people rich. So sometimes people are getting rich to make us hate each other, okay? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so when you started talking about that in your book and the whole issue of media and, and, and who do you listen to or who do you read, I think that we're being pitted against each other for budgets for dollars to make fat cats rich. And I think it's dangerous, it's undermining our society Imagine if we were a civilization stuck by a well that had been poisoned. Mm -hmm. How would we live? And yet our wells are poisoned. And I'm not talking about the fake news thing that's out there. I'm talking about the business of news and how we're pitted against each other. And we have people who will get in food, into an absolute fight in the street about a fact that you really don't know to be a fact and about a person that you've never really met, but you know that's a dog, that's a scoundrel, I can't stand him. Hey, excuse me, you don't know him. I know for a fact that when they get through fighting in, in the media, they go to lunch. Many of them who are on opposing sides walk off the set and go to lunch. That doesn't mean that they don't believe their view, but they don't allow their view to influence them to the degree 
that we do. You and I are supposed to be the good news reporters, mm-hmm. okay? Hope givers. Yeah, hope givers. And if we do not tackle tough issues and bring light and enlightenment to people, then the bitter waters of Mara remain bitter and the civilization dies in the desert of the lack of good information. How do we fix that? Commit to giving good news. I think the danger for us is to get dragged into the gossip. (laughs) And, you know, this book is not about... Uh, it's not about politics at all. Politics is not going to fix this. It's not about criticizing people. Mm-hmm. It's about giving people tools mm-hmm. on how they can overcome biases in their own life that they might not even know about. And so I'm committed to in, in this process and with this book to give people, speak life into people and to give mm-hmm. people hope. And so people can read this book and say, I'm going to learn about how I can better honor people and not get caught up into labeling people and putting people down except versus versus uh, lifting people up. You said uh, something about being a civilization. Why can't we be a civilization? Why can't we be civil? We need mm-hmm. to be civil. Right. Uh, and I, I, I had a blind spot in there referring to the media where you can't listen to certain media that is biased and it has their views, that's their job, and feel like you're not... You're, that you're innocent of playing into the game. You right. have to understand that they're feeding you. There's a thing called social narrative that I write about. Everybody has a social narrative, so it's a story that defines how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see others, and how you expect they're going to treat you. All of us have that. That's what irrigated our consciousness, right? Our social narrative, our parents, our, our school. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> it has irrigated the substratum of my consciousness. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with it. Going with it. I hear you. So, so, but we all have this, this social narrative, but a lot of us don't even realize that we had a, that our, that when there is a social narrative, but that it's flawed. Mm-hmm. My social narrative, my family, my upbringing, my experiences, how I understood the media growing up created a perception in my head that is my perception. Mm -hmm. But it's only perception. It's probably one of the six billion perceptions. But I think it's probably 90% right Mm -hmm. when it's so wrong. And I think we have to come to this discussion realizing I have a whole lot to learn. And that's scary for people Mm -hmm. because it makes their foundation a little shaky. Yeah, because... We need to feel like we're right. Yes. And when, when, when it becomes important to you that your perspective is right, you don't investigate the other idea. And that's, that is the death of creativity. It is the death of brotherhood. It is the death of friendships. It is the death of marriage. Mm. Most marriages implode because both sides, I know you've counseled couples where both sides thought they were right and you were just, just ringing the bell like you were at a boxing match trying to break up the fight. And, and, and the, the whole marriage died because they wouldn't listen to each other. It is possible for what your perception about something to be true but still not be right. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. And, and I think that, that your book is challenging us to get out of our little uh, conclaves and our little social groups and, and, and to drop our biases and our in-groups, as you call them, and broaden us. I am, I am so much richer having known you. <laughs> I, I, I am so much richer having known people 
from Africa. I am so much richer having made friends with Canadians. I am so much richer because I've got white guys that are friends of mine and, mm -hmm. and white families that come over to dinner and black and brown. And my children are richer mm -hmm. and broader and more eligible to escape these uh, social uh, uh, in-groups and be broader with possibilities because of that. I think this book is important to put in the heads of children, not to allow yourself to end up in a clique. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna break that in-group down to a clique. It might be a big, huge clique, but it's a clique. And you walk past people who absolutely care about you. And have the potential to be a huge blessing. So my family's high yellow. Okay. okay. We're a little chocolate over we're, here. We're a little chocolate over here. We're a little, a little milk chocolate. I call my, 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 my wife's nickname, her mother's white, her father's black. We, her nickname is Milk Milk. So she's like chocolate milk with extra milk. That's okay, 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 okay. So my grandson, he's light-skinned. And, you know, he's two years old. His world is light-skinned people. My best friend from high school is about your complexion. We're the Afro still from high school. He comes to hang out with a couple of days. His nickname is MC. My grandson's MJ. Mm -hmm. So they had this little thing going back and forth, back and forth. Well, ever since my MC left, every brother that he sees that complexion is Grampy's friend. Mm -hmm. He goes, Grant, is that, that, is that MC? I said, that's not MC. <laughs> but, but it's Grampy's friend. It's Grampy's friend. It is so critical. When you get kids and you can expose kids to relationships that you have. Right. <laughs> it's one thing to put them in a group of little kids that are, that are diverse. That's great. Absolutely. But they need to see mommy and daddy with relationships mm -hmm. that are different. Yeah. Because mommy and daddy are going to model to their kids, these kind of people are valuable. Right. These kind of people are friendly. These yeah. kind of people are safe. But if they don't see that, they may pick it up in their own circles, but when they see it with their parents, it's going gonna, it's gonna to set them on a path where they're going to live a, a diverse life. That's why I think that the church stumbles when we once a year trade pulpits or we have these foot washing services or we come together and have prayer and we pray with people we wouldn't eat with, uh, wouldn't go to the car wash with, Ooh, yeah. to, to bring them into your real life right. with all of its flaws and fallacies. Then, then we're friends, right. but into your dressed up churchy right. life for an hour, for an hour <laughs> so that you can say, you know, uh, uh, some of my best friends are, are, are black or some right. of my best friends are white. That's not what I call a friend. Mm -hmm. A friend is sharing my griefs and my sorrows and my strengths and my weaknesses and, and going through tough times. Listen, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to put you on the spot. Uh oh. So brace yourself. You've got an NFL background. You're a pastor. We're talking about race. If I don't talk about Colin Kaepernick, everybody's going to just blow up the whole social media thing. Having come from an NFL background, having loved this country, what do you think about it? Him or the kneeling? The kneeling. Two sides. And, and, and there's always a third option. In every conversation, the truth is kind of in the middle. I understand. My father fought in the military. I understand respecting the flag. So all the people who feel like don't respect, don't, dis, don't disrespect the flag no matter what, I get it. However, it's, there's no however, that's, that's the truth. The other truth is in, from all the guys that I know, and I know personally, you know, 
Well, not all of them, but I know some of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Their issue is not disrespecting the flag. And I think Collins kneeling because he was told by someone in the military, you disrespect by sitting down. He said, okay, I don't want to disrespect. I want to kneel. If, if Bishop was laying in the street in Dallas and someone in Dallas is driving down the street and they say, wait a minute, that's Bishop. Whether they knew you or not, but people would probably know you, that's Bishop. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing they would say is why is he laying in the street? Mm-hmm. Not get up, I got to get to work. <laughs> right, 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 right. So when I see kids, and I think this is, this is the, let me say, let me say first to, to the people who are adamant about disrespecting the flag, I, we shouldn't disrespect the flag. I get that. And I get people being upset about that. But the third option is, can we take a minute to think? This is a 20-something-year-old, Colin, and these other guys are younger, 20, you know, 23, 24, 25 years old. Yes, they're getting paid a lot of money. However, what you are watching is a guy risking his career for a burden that he has. Because in the NFL, unlike baseball, hockey, and, 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 and basketball, those guaranteed contracts are not guaranteed. They will get cut in their lifetime. That, mm-hmm. That's just the nature of football. Okay. You lose your money in a day. Mm-hmm. I was making, I had a three-year contract. You could have a five-year contract, and they cut you the next day. They don't pay you. It's a little better now, but these are not, and, and the guys who get guaranteed contracts, you hear about it, but it's not automatic like baseball. So when a guy is doing that, he is risking his career he is risking his salary that he's not going to go out and just get another job making a million bucks. No, no. He's very aware of that. So if I'm looking at that, I'm going, okay, why? And I think the third option, and this is what I think would hope people would, would think about, is I should know why would a young guy put his career on the line like that? Mm-hmm. That's really the issue, and that's what they're doing. You know, it's 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 the crime, it's the injustice in the, in the community, it's the police stuff, conflicts with the police, it's healthcare, all the stuff that they they grew up with. So my my it, my plea would be that people would want to know why? why they're doing it. Why they, they they are kneeling? That kneeling is a cry for help. Can anybody? Can y'all help with these issues that these pe- we are going through? I go back to labeling. When you label someone as a black athlete, spoiled, whatever, you just demoted him. Mm-hmm. He's not your brother. If it was your brother, your biological brother, you say, man, why is my brother, why is he doing that? Hey, why are you doing that? We need to have that posture. Now, you could disagree. That's fine. But at least find out and have some compassion for a guy who is saying, I may lose my job. I remember when I hurt my knee. My, I was going to my fourth year. And in the NFL, if you're hurt, they can't cut you when you're hurt, mm-hmm. uh, technically. But if you're hurt, you can't play. When you, when you practice, soon they get you on film practicing, they can cut you, and they don't have to pay you. So my, 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 my uh, 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 fourth year, I was hurt. And I said, you know what? I can practice. I'm going to practice today, and I'm probably going to lose my job tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I said that to myself. I'm going to get cut tomorrow because I'm going to practice today and they're going to have a film. Right. So I was out, I was warming, I was literally doing this in calisthenics, getting ready to practice. And the trainer walked over to me and gave me a red jersey and looked me in the eye and said, you are hurt because my coach didn't want me to get cut. Wow. Because he said, he said, don't say anything to me. Just put this on. And what he was saying to me was, if you practice today, you're going to lose your job tomorrow. Right. When these guys do that, they understand that they could lose their job. Wow. 
And so, so I think the, the, the main thing is why are they doing that? And if, and if the owners, this is what my hope would be, that the owners, the players could work together publicly and make that work of addressing the social issues accessible to everybody else. And then we all become part of the solution together. The NBA, no one protests. Why is that? Because the, because the, uh, um, the commissioner and the athletes have relationship. In case you just logged on, I'm talking to Miles McPherson. We're having a very engaging conversation. We're talking about life. We're talking about America. We're talking about race in America. He brings a, a very rich heritage, a biracial, triracial perspective <laughs> on things that's really fresh. He's just written this book, The Third Option, that's absolutely amazing. It's not in the stores yet, but you can go to Amazon right now and pre-order this book and get in on this conversation. When you start talking about... Um, this whole thing with the kneeling and, and all of that and why, the why of it all and how we should be curious to know that. You and I have the advantage of being just a little bit older and we have seen the people that are revered as heroes today, like Muhammad Ali uh, passed away and, and the whole world stopped in homage to the tremendous contributions that he made on a lot of fronts in a lot of areas, changing uh, the community far beyond sports and being a boxer. He uh, was an advocate for the undertrodden and the oppressed. But I can remember when he was locked up in jail and a convict and hated because he didn't participate in the Vietnam War and he was very controversial and and in most circles disliked. The strength that he had to withstand that, to actually be arrested, meant that he was true to his convictions, even if it made him unpopular. Dr. King, who's got all of these highways and schools and buses named after him today, was hated when he was doing what he was doing. They said he was communist. He was investigated by the government. He went through hell. Rosa Parks was not popular when she refused to give up her seat. In fact, it resulted in an arrest. Now history has come to life here. And those that care enough to make these kinds of public sacrifices, God bless them, they may be tomorrow's heroes, but today they're hated. How do we pray for people who are hated and misunderstood? I think we need to pray for both sides. And thus the book is to say, do I care? because the we to pray for them the people who pray for the ones who are hated are going to be the ones who care Mm -hmm. the ones who don't care who hate them we need to pray for their hearts and we need to pray for you know what I'm saying because we're already if we're praying for them we're kind of already on their side and I say on their side I don't agree with everything Colin has said and done however for him to make a stand and have us talking right Pray that that he, I pray that he, whatever he wanted to start, that he would continue, be be more vocal about, mm-hmm. and 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 pray that God would keep him on his path. But I also pray that people would want to know more about mm-hmm. what the issue is, because in the end we have to come together and agree to work together. At least in a, even if we don't agree with everything together. At least part of it. I'm probably going to get stoned for this, but I have a, a habit of saying whatever I think. For me, the thing that is the most troubling 
is that we end up focusing our attention on whether you kneel or stand for the flag rather than to confront the injustices that the flag represents and guarantees that we should all have the equal rights to freedom and justice and liberty for all. That's what it's all about. And we get off on a tangent about the flag and miss the point of the flag. And the best way to honor the flag is to live up to what it represents and how we treat people. And I think sometimes we wash away the more important thing and we fight about the part that is microscopic in comparison. The other issue, when you look at the statues and, and, and the taking down of the various statues of slave owners, a lot of people are deeply offended by that. I get that. I understand why they would be. It's not some place where I want to sit down and eat a hamburger up under one of them either. Having said that, I'm not nearly as concerned about the statue as I'm concerned about the, the trials that are executed on the street by, by overworked police officers, underpaid in stressful situations who execute justice rather than a court of law that ought to be the right of every human being. I'm concerned about that. I think sometimes because we get our visuals from the media, we start majoring on the minor and we get caught up in the froth at the top and we don't get to the underbelly of what's beneath it. Do you feel that way? Absolutely. And I think what you just said, overworked, underpaid police officers, I hope people didn't miss that. My son's a SWAT officer. He's police officer SWAT in San Diego. My dad was a cop 30 years in New York. My dad was a cop. I did surveillance for New York NYPD when I was 10 years old because he did. He was, he was a, a, a patrolman. Then he was internal affairs. He arrested cops. So <laughs> there was something, you know, there was, there was cops doing stuff wrong. There cops doing something good. They're people. I think where we miss by looking at the media is we're dealing with people. And if we could get to know people, why are the people who are marching, why are they marching? Right. Who are they? What is their burdens? I had, when, when there was a march, after Charlottesville last year, the first one, there was a march in Boston a short time after that, and there was a white couple, white family. They had little kids. It happened to be in Boston. They were from our church. They called an African-American guy on our, in, our, in our church and said, I'm thinking about going to march because <laughs> I want my kids to be part of the unification of the country and stand up for what's right. They were people that had a burden for the, for the cause. When we can focus on people instead of policies and what we see on television, when I say policy, policy is important, but just the headline, right? Right, 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 and, right? And what's on television and the event that we can focus on people and understanding people's burdens, listening to people. Um, that's where change is going to happen. Listen, if you just joined in, I am talking to this, this <laughs> mammoth person with this huge life experience that has written an amazing book, Miles McPherson's new book, The Third Option, is powerful. It will be in your stores when? September 11th, but Amazon right September now. September <laughs> 11th, but you can go to Amazon and pre-order right now and pre-order, reserve your copy, place your comments on there and uh, get an opportunity to be involved with this. It occurs to me as we get ready to close that the third option might be good for couples too. Because when marriages and relationships are in dispute, there's your view and there's my view. And then there's the third option. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that this, this, the whole synopsis of the third option makes us have to open up to hear each other makes us have to open up to understand somebody who's out of my group because sometimes women seem like they're from another planet to guys <laughs> and vice versa. And, and, and the family is the first cultural experience whereby you merge into a setting with somebody so different and you have to learn how to work things out. And we're not doing good with that. 
And if we're not doing good with that, we're not going to do good in the office and we're not going to do good in the world if we can't find a way to love the people that we have selected to love. And so the third option really is about listening. It's about learning. Uh, it's about coming together in a way that you couldn't come together before. I can't see where anybody wouldn't be bettered by pursuing the third option. What made you call it the third option? Um, in every race conversation, in every race conflict, it's about us versus them. Mm-hmm. Culture is forcing us, pick a side. <laughs> right? God's, the number of unity is one, the number of division is two. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so we got to go. So three. So, the, so if I, I either pick this side or that side, the third option says, why don't we honor what we have in common? Okay. Which is the image of God. And uh, so that's how we got to the third option. I do want to plug September 15th, our simulcast at the Tell me about So the book comes out September 11th, which is a Tuesday. That's, that's Saturday, September 15th. We're having a free event. Uh, and it's going to be about two hours. I'm going to preach on the third option. I'll answer some questions. Kevin Frazier from Entertainment Tonight is going to be one of the hosts. Great, um, great guy. But we are going Hi, to <laughs> we are going to have and, and Megan Alexander from uh, Inside Edition. Um, uh, we are going to have a demonstration on how to have a race conversation. And and now this is simulcasted right now to 180 churches. It's free. You can go to businesses. You can go to your small group and go to anywhere you want. You're going to have a demonstration. We're going to have a demonstration. It's going to be a video on how how to have a race conversation. Right. I don't think people do know how. That's what's so fascinating about it. I don't think that it's that people as a whole don't want to talk about it. Right. I don't think they know how to talk about it. Right. You're actually going to show them how to have a conversation. We're going to, we're going to say, look. And it's designed for people who don't know each other. Right. So I'm black, you're Asian, you're white. We have never met. And here's how we can have a conversation. Now, if you know somebody, you'll go way beyond the rules we're going to give because this is a scary proposition. So here are the rules. We're going to give you seven questions. You have a minute to answer. But you are not permitted to respond to the person. What I mean by that is that if I say this happened to me, you can't say, well, that didn't happen to you. And you're mm-hmm. or, or you can't invalidate my story, my right. experience. You have to listen. Yeah. So it is an opportunity to self-disclose. Oh, that's wonderful. So you self-disclose, you self-disclose, you self-disclose. And we go around. Everybody has a minute. And if you feel uncomfortable, you raise your hand and you say family. And everybody stops talking. And then you tell everybody you love them and you start over. So what we're going to do in this event is we're going to demonstrate that. I'm going to, like I said, we're going to have worship, we're going to have singing, we're going to dance and all kind of stuff. And then we're going to end with a declaration of unity that we've written. When the event is over, two hours, two hours, 15 minutes, we're going to ask all the people and all the sites to get in groups and do that conversation. So how do people participate in this? A raceforunity.com. A raceforunity.com. A raceforunity.com. So they, it's not too late to be a part no, of the simulcast. No, we're asking churches to get together. We, want, we have to have diverse audiences so we can get in the room and talk. And we're going to give all the instructions to the host sites. Okay, so we want all the churches to participate. A raceforunity.com. You can get more information. Now, you may have to go out and get some diversity. <laughs> because most churches don't have any diversity. So, so we're encouraging black, white, Hispanic churches exactly. to contact each other. To get okay, together, right? and bring up. That's a good thing right. to do, to bring them together. And I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity for you to learn more and to do some little uh, on-the-job training. On the job, everything's at Miles pearson.com at milespearson.com all the stuff is there as well but they can it's not too late it's free 
Um, and, and we're just putting it out there on September 15th. <clears throat> Final question, yeah. which I said before, I'm like the old Baptist preacher keeps closing <laughs> and doesn't close. Your church has a considerable amount of diversity. I had the privilege of being out there. There are people there from literally every walks of life. Yeah. They are, uh, you are a microcosm of it. I mean, there's, you are diverse, your church is diverse. What have you learned by holding people together who were different? What have you learned as a pastor? And what would you say to other pastors who are trying to do this? I see pastors who really want to do this. They're almost going out to rent some other people, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to rent me about 20 people, bring them in there. And they put them all on stage, and, you know. You know. What, what, what have you learned and what would you say? Man, I wish I had a really, a really, really, really good answer. Um, I think that I think it starts with the small group. As you said, who in my world, do I have white friends, black friends, Asian friends that are really my friends? You know, there was a study, I think it was Harvard, I believe, it's in my book, the, the citation. 75% of white people have no black friends, 60-something percent of black people have no black, uh, uh, no white you get friends. what I mean. We don't have friends, we don't have relationships, so I act a certain way because I'm always in my in-group. When I get my out group, ah, so my, my church experience is one way. I am one way. Uh, I can only, I'm not all things to all people. I have to practice being all things to all people before my church can be all things to all people. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that practice. Authenticity. Yes, that practice. So when, when, when someone, whatever nationality the pastor is, when someone different comes in, they go, he's real. Mm-hmm. And he gets me. There are people now leaving churches because the pastors are so political and leaning one way. Mm-hmm. And they're not talking to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so how can you talk? Yes. And by the way, leave politics out of it. It's the same yes. way. Just yes. talk to give the word of God. Yeah, but, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. Really nice. Thank so you. that's what I would say. You know what? I want to give you a challenge to get outside of your in-group today and go and talk to somebody and uh, give them a bag of potato chips or start a conversation or ask them which way to the restroom. I mean, whatever you got to do to break outside of these silos and these boxes that we're in and to, and to really fulfill the Great Commission. You don't always need an airplane to go into all the world. You might be called to go across the street. God bless you. It's Thank good. you for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for checking out this podcast episode. If you like what you heard, please do us a big, big favor and go like this episode and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much.